Mercy House. <coughs> um, my name is Zofia. I am a senior at Mount Holyoke College. I've been going here for like four years. So um, I'm going to be reading our Advent and also word. Um, so before the scripture reading today, we are going to reflect on the season of Advent. Advent, which means coming or visit, is observed in the church during the days in December leading up to Christmas Eve. It is a time to place ourselves in the position of Israel, who are waiting for their Messiah for, a hun for hundreds of years. We symbolize that waiting with the use of an Advent wreath, which is made up of five candles. Today, we will light the second candle, and each week, another candle leading up to Christmas Eve, when we will light the, can the Christ candle in the middle of the wreath. In this season, we will keep in mind both Advents of Christ, the first in Bethlehem as his birth, and the second is the waiting that we do now as the church while we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. The first purple candle we lit last week represents hope. Today, the next purple candle that is lit represents love. And now please turn with me to Psalms 132 for the reading of the passage before the sermon. The Lord has chosen Zion. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall, shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is the resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless his, her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints I will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. your heads with me in prayer. Um, dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful day that we get to spend in fellowship and community with you. Thank you so much um, for the testimonies that you brought to us today and the baptisms that we got to witness as a community. Um, I thank you for um, Tommy and I pray that you use him as a vessel for um, you're good, Lord, and I pray that as a church that we would listen to these words and take them um, and utilize them throughout the rest of our weeks, Lord. Um, I thank you for the season of Advent, and I pray that we find peace and rest in waiting for your return. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you, Zoe. Good morning, Mercy House. How are we? Pretty good? Pretty decent? Like a 5 out of 10, it sounds like. All right, I'll take it. 
Well, we are glad that you are with us this morning. If you're new, special welcome to you. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm the director of teaching and ministry here at Mercy House. We're glad you're here with us worshiping the Lord. And so this clearly has been a very special morning for us. Uh, It's special because we had this blessing of being able to participate in this baptism of both Amelia and Lila, and it was awesome. And I think one of the things that we see uh, is is such unique and special stories for each of them and what brought them to this place here this morning. And even though these stories, as as you're hearing them being read, uh, reach back into the past, the baptism this morning itself uh, really is a significant milestone in their relationships with Jesus. Uh, It's an incredibly public declaration for them uh, that God has done something incredibly miraculous inside of them, and it's a commitment that they're making to walk the long road home. I mean, that's what we've been talking about this entire semester, the long road home of life in right relationship with God, in right relationship with one another, toward our eternal home in Christ. So my wife, Caitlin, and I uh, have been to several weddings since uh, the day that that we got married, and I think each ceremony, what it does is it reminds us of our own uh, ceremony. All of the love that we experienced that day, all of the feels, the, the grand epicness of that day, and whenever we're at a wedding, it just fills our hearts with joy. It reinvigorates us in our covenant that we've made with one another. And so for those of you in this room who are Christians, who were able to watch that baptism, I, I hope that it would be encouraging to you, that, that it would have been reminding you of the commitment that you had made to follow Jesus, but maybe even more importantly, that it would remind you of the faithfulness of God which has brought you to this point in this room this morning. And so I, I pray also that it would reinvigorate you in your faith uh, as you continue walking on this long road home. Amelia and Lila, like, we're super happy for them. Uh, I just, I, I wanted to say publicly how encouraged we are by their faith, their obedience to Jesus, and I don't think they're here anymore, but uh, they were here during first service, so, oh, Lila's here. Hey, Lila, sorry. And so, yeah, I just want to clap one more time for them, because they're awesome. Thank you, God. Awesome. All right, well, let's jump right into the teaching this morning, because we have a doozy of a text. It's more than twice as long as any of the other psalms in these songs of ascents, um, and this is very purposeful, and it has a point. So in Hebrew poetry, the, the length communicates importance. And it's not to say that the three verses from last Sunday that were preached on by Jake were, were measly or inferior when compared to uh, this song that we're looking at this morning, but the length is communicating that there's really some important themes and some concepts that we really need to make sure that we get this morning. Uh, And and there's really just some more that we get to unpack together. So I'm going to stop talking about the psalm, and I'm going to read the psalm starting in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. For us to really grasp this this morning, the historical context for this passage is really important. The psalmist is referring back to a specific time when King David had made a commitment to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant, which was lost in battle, and to restore it back to its resting place in Jerusalem. You can read all about this in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 5, 6, and a little bit of 7. And I'll be alluding to some passages in there, so if you want a thumb there and just uh, have a finger there if you want to look at it along with me. But in order to really understand what's going on in this psalm, we have to understand what the Ark of the Covenant was. 
And not just what it was, but what it meant for the people of Israel and why it was such a big deal for the people of Israel. Here's a good description of the physical ark itself. This is Peterson from a long road of, uh, I'm sorry, a long obedience uh, in the same direction. He says, the Ark of the Covenant was a box approximately 45 inches long, 27 inches broad, and 27 inches deep, constructed of wood and covered with gold. Its lid of solid gold was called the mercy seat. Two cherubim, angel-like figures at either end, framed in the space around the central mercy seat from which God's word was heard. It had been made under the supervision of Moses and was a symbol of the presence of God among his people. So in short, it's a really fancy box. It's a really fancy box. And if you're curious like me, you might be wondering, well, what's kept inside? Surely they didn't just carry around an empty box, even if it looked amazing and if it was filled with, uh, or I'm sorry, with gold and cool things on the outside. There must have been things inside. Well, there were. There were three things that were kept inside of this box. And we see this confirmed in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews 9, verse 4, this is what it says. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Three things. Now, I know not everybody in this room is very sentimental, but let me tell you, these three things carried an incredible amount of historical, even emotional, even spiritual significance for the people of Israel. Each item would be a reminder of really important things that God had, had, had communicated to them and revealed to them about himself. And so the manna, which we actually started this entire sermon series with at the very beginning in the fall, the manna, which God miraculously rained down for Israel, it reminded them of his care and his provision for his people. The staff, which is used by Moses to perform incredible miracles in opposition to Pharaoh during their exodus, reminded Israel of his authority and the power which stood on Israel's side as God was on their side. And the tablets the, uh, of the covenant reminded them of God's promise of relationship with his people. Really, this box is a treasure trove of mementos, all reminders of who God is to them as a people group. And then the ark itself, as alluded to earlier in the description from Peterson, it itself is a reminder of specifically God's presence with his people. And so the ark, all together, was a powerful reminder of God's provision his power, his promises, and his presence. What's important to take away from this is that objects can have significance for us as humans, and they can be really helpful for us uh, as reminders. And the objects themselves have no power. I'm not encouraging us to, to, to uh, worship physical inanimate objects. The Ark of the Covenant didn't have any special powers. It, it didn't melt people's faces off like it did in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you're like an Indiana Jones fan. That's not what the ark did. It was just a box with a stick in it, some old bread, and some hunks of granite. Like, that's what was inside. Now, Peterson expands on this. He says the ark was a symbol, not a reality. When the ark was treated as a talisman, as a curio, or as a magical device with which to manipulate God, everything went wrong. God cannot be contained or used. But objects can be powerful reminders, my wedding ring was given to me seven years ago by my wife, and, and, and it was given to me on my wedding day, and every time I feel it on my hand, every time I'm sitting there and playing with it on my hand, it reminds me of her. It reminds me of the commitment that I made to her. 
Now, the ring itself is, is not magical in, in any way. There's no power or force that comes from this piece of metal on my finger. Uh, it's not something that I worship. I don't sit in the closet and go, my precious, right? That would be weird. I don't do that. But it helps me remember something really, really important. It takes me back to the moment when I received it, and it's a symbol of my covenant with my wife, Caitlin. I think something worth wondering here is if, brought, if, pro, I'm sorry, if objects can serve as powerful reminders, then how can we further utilize objects around us to help direct us toward important spiritual truths? Because the reality is, is that everything around us is vying for our attention. There's lots of reminders in the world around us, and these reminders are not necessarily to remind us of God's sovereign grace in our lives. They're not to remind us of the kindness of God despite our hardness, not to remind us of God's forgiveness despite our sinfulness, or even his trustworthiness despite our faithlessness. Like that, those aren't the reminders that we get from the world around us. We get reminded about much more mundane things. We get notifications on our phone, on our watches. We see advertisements on billboards and on the radio. T-Mobile text messages me once a week to remind me to pay my bill, which I always pay, but they just assume that I'm not going to pay it, so they text me incessantly. My car dings at me every time I need to change my oil. Like, there are all these notifications that are trying to remind us of things, and these aren't bad. They're not inherently evil. They can be really useful, but... We need to be conscious of the fact that being inundated with spiritually insignificant things can distract us from engaging in meaningful relationship with God. Are you following me there? And one of Satan's favorite weapons is simple distraction to keep us and our attention away from God. But I I think that this is one of the things that we see with the ark that the careful use and placement of objects can help us combat the distractions of life, life and, and help us engage with God. A couple of months ago, I came into our kitchen, and, and there's a cutting board with like a pile of meat on it and a cookbook right next to it. Um, and that's not like a strange sight in our house until I look closer and realize that's not a cookbook, that's a Bible. And I thought about making a joke like, man, we're about to have some really holy food in our house. Caitlin shared with me later that sometimes it's been hard for her to create the time to have a quiet time. What with all of her running around and the chores that she's staying on top of, she's, she's taking care of the children and, and doing so much during the day. And so what she decided to do was to keep her Bible just open on the counter. And not because it, it was providing some sort of mystical aura around the kitchen, but simply so that she would be reminded, maybe have the holy temptation to stop and read it as she goes about her day. See, a strategic placement of an object to help direct her attention toward God. And this is where we get to be a little bit creative. Maybe for us, that looks like writing a verse on a sticky note and putting it on the mirror where we brush our teeth so you can leverage those 120 seconds that you're brushing your teeth in the morning and the evening. Maybe it's the hanging of a cross on a wall or you put something on your rearview mirror, something to help trigger your brain to remind you to pray to God, to give thanks to God. And maybe it's not just a physical object, but maybe you're utilizing a tradition or a habit, something that you do to help turn your attention toward God. Maybe it's the singing of a worship song with your family before bed, or maybe the habit of praying before you eat. Maybe it is a reminder set up on your telephone to read your Bible, or maybe it's playing worship music uh, while you're doing your chores around the house, or maybe it's listening to a sermon or a podcast when you're, you're driving in the car, or you're going for a run, or you're taking a shower. The point is is that objects and traditions can be powerful tools to aid in our sanctification as Christians, our maturing in our faith. 
And this is especially important as we move toward Christmas, a holiday that is filled with objects and songs and traditions that we're all participating in, most of which are really awesome. But challenge yourself with me this season uh, to, to look at the things that, that, that are happening during the Christmas season and see how they can point toward Jesus. What does this look like? Well, maybe sometimes when we see evergreen trees, we're remembering that they represent the eternal hope that we have in Christ that never fades. Letting lights on uh, houses at night and also on the Christmas tree remind us how the coming of Christ is illuminating a dark world. Maybe it's looking at delicious meals and enjoying meals with friends and family, uh, reminding us of the reconciliation and the peace that we have with God and the ultimate meal that we get to share with Him. Even looking at presents, understanding that presents point toward the greatest present that we as Christians have ever received or ever will receive, which is the free gift of grace from Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins. See, a lot of this is something that we've lost as a culture. And some of it has been lost over time. Some of it has just been because we are so distracted with so many different things that are happening during the holiday season. Some of it is because we naturally fall into cultural Christmas because that's kind of the easy thing to do. But what you realize is that Israel was all about symbolism and significance. Because it's what God is all about. As you read the Bible, you see God constantly using symbols and images to help his people understand who he is but also to help them remember him as well. God is a God of object lessons. And the reason why he's a God of object lessons is, is, is so that those objects can serve as reminders of the lessons he's teaching. And this is why Jewish culture is steeped in tradition. It's why Israel made all of those pilgrimages back to Jerusalem for all the holidays and all of the feasts. It's why they sang these 15 songs for thousands of years, and it's why the Ark of the Covenant meant so much to them, which is why, as we built out this historical and cultural context, we can understand why, when the Philistines took the Ark as a trophy of war and displayed it in all of their cities, Israel looked on and grieved. And it's why David was so adamant and committed to returning it back to Jerusalem. Not because it was their lucky charm that won them battles or because they needed that object in order to worship God, but because it was a powerful and important symbol. And what it did was it engaged the memories and the hearts of all of Israel to the reality that they needed God, that they needed God to provide for them. They needed God to to, to protect them and to fight their battles for them. They needed God because a relationship with him was the most incredible blessing and the most necessary thing to their existence. They needed, they desired, they longed for God's presence, which is what the ark itself symbolized, which is why David made a promise to God. He committed himself to the task of getting the ark and returning it to Jerusalem, saying in verse 3, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. Has anyone made a commitment like that before? (laughs) I haven't. But David is, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David's passion and drive here shows us two things about him that I think are worth mentioning. The first is that he was zealous for the joy that he had in the presence of God. That the presence of God brought him so much joy and so much peace. It was so desirable that it was worth fighting for. It was worth risking his life for. It was was worth losing sleep over until he was able to have it. 
And the second thing we see is that he devoted himself passionately to a task that benefited his entire community. The ark wasn't just symbolic for him or or to the people within his house. It was a reminder to all of Israel of God's provision, his protection, his promises, and his presence. And so David's commitment was in service to his entire community. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, I think first, that we as Christians who have experienced God making his dwelling place inside of our hearts, we get to experience this presence of God always. And so David's perspective of God's presence, something that that is uh, worth restlessly seeking after and zealously fighting for, it ought to remind us to take the time to enjoy the presence of God in our lives. To not be so hurried and so busy, to not occupy all of our time looking for peace in a TV show or relaxing by the beach and all these things that, that we could put over and above the most incredible gift that we have which is being able to spend time in the living and active relationship that we have with the God of the universe. So consider that David wouldn't sleep until he had this presence and the fact that we as Christians have this presence right now. That should encourage us to spend time with the Lord. The second thing we can take away from this is that as members of this covenant community here, as members of Mercy House, we ought to be inspired to fight zealously for the spiritual benefit of our brothers and sisters. When there's an opportunity to bless another member of the family here, to to encourage them or to build them up in Christ, we should commit to doing it, even if it costs us money, even if it costs us time and our comfort and energy, even our sleep. We ought to do it. We ought to bring a meal to someone in need or make that 5 a.m. airport run Offer up that spare bedroom in our home and maybe to continue giving faithfully and sacrificially to the ministry that is here at Mercy House. And not because you have to in order to be a part of this community. Uh, Not to make me happy or make the leaders of our church happy or even to make God happy. David committed his energy and passion to the retrieval of the ark, not out of duty or obligation, He did it because, first, it spiritually benefited him, (laughs) like it was a blessing for him to receive the ark, but he also did it out of love and compassion for his brothers and sisters. Mercy House, I pray that we as a community would be filled with gospel compassion for one another, a gospel compassion that drives us to want to serve one another, even if it means paying a great cost, knowing that Christ has paid the ultimate cost in service to us. And so if you're sitting here and you're listening to this and and, and your life is just overloaded right now, if you are overwhelmed, if you're feeling maxed out, if you're exhausted, I don't want you to hear that I'm saying to just serve, to add just another thing to your life and, and it'll work out. Like, please, please, please do not hear me saying that this morning. But there are others in this room who need to actually serve you if you are maxed out and exhausted like that. And to those other people, those with some margin in their lives, uh, those with some conviction who are actually excited to serve, and maybe you feel that God is encouraging you and motivating you to, to serve the church body, know that there are many people in this room and in our local community who are struggling just to keep their heads above water, who are maxed out and on the verge of burnout. Mercy House, I want to be very transparent with you. Some of these people are your leaders and your staff here in this church. 
And while we might not be burnt out at this very second, the pace of ministry and life that we're engaged in, mostly because of this transition that we're in as a church, is not sustainable. And I'm kind of communicating that very clearly and honestly with you, knowing that this is something that, that we're conscious of, that we're trying to work through together as a team. But at the same time, I think this text is so timely. The truth is that we need more Davids who are motivated by compassion and making the commitment to serve in ways that will physically, emotionally, and spiritually benefit all of us as a church body. As this transition continues, as Lois leaves, uh, big gaping holes are going to appear at this church. And so my encouragement to you as members of the church family would be to keep your eyes out. Keep your eyes out for ways that you can serve, and, and, and not out of a place of obligation or duty, but driven by compassion, ways that you can serve and fight for your brothers and your sisters here at Mercy House in the months to come, because Lord knows we need it. What's beautiful about David's commitment and his zeal, his passion, his service uh, to, 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 to his covenant community and family is that it all paid off. They were able to actually find the ark. Read with me in verse 6. It says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. (coughs) Excuse me. When they found the ark, David and his men went to go get it. And there is excitement and there is joy. And it's not because there was power in the ark. And we know this because their response when they found it was, let's go worship God. And they refer to the ark as God's footstool. So you don't worship a footstool. The footstool symbolizes the presence of God. Now, I don't think that we can understate how epic of a moment this is for Israel. So as we remember what the ark symbolized for Israel, remembering how David uh, was just completely devoted to restoring the ark back to his people, for his own sake, but also for the sake of all of his community. And this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Look look at these verses, which will be on your screens. uh, screens. This is from when the ark was being brought into Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark enters into the gates of Jerusalem, there is a citywide party, a grand parade that really has no equal. It says in verse 13 that every six steps that those who carried the ark took, David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Every six steps, which we really have no like framework for us like today, but a commentator said plainly, this was elaborate, excessive, over-the-top sacrifice. That's how it's described. Let me try to help us understand what's happening. So you look today at a mature ox. In a world where it's relatively easy to domesticate and raise animals at scale, an ox today costs roughly $5,000. A fattened goat, which is probably the animal that was sacrificed alongside it, costs about $800 today. 
The average step of a person carrying something heavy, I did this in my basement with a ruler, so it's real legit. If you're carrying something heavy, you could probably take like a one-foot step at a time, right? Like that seems fair. Okay, thank you. Got one nod. So you put all of these numbers together, and David, if he were doing this today, he'd be spending roughly $6,000 for every six feet that the ark moved. That's $1,000 a foot. Like, you talk about a lavish parade where, where you're spending $1,000 for every single step that you take from the gates of Jerusalem all the way to the tabernacle. That's a long way. Talk about lavish. And I think that commentator hit it right on the head, that this was elaborate, excessive, over-the-top sacrifice. Well, why was David doing this? Why was he blowing so much cash on this parade? Was it out of duty? Was it out of obligation? Was he convicted in order to do it? No. It was out of pure joy and pure worship of God. How do we know this? Well, we know this because look at what David is doing. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Have you ever seen a fully grown man dance with all his might? I have, and it's dangerous. When you have a full-grown man at like a wedding on a dance floor, dancing with all his might. My father-in-law, he was at the first service. That man dances with all his might at a wedding. He sweats through his blazer. Like that's how hard he's working. He, he, would, he would appreciate that. That's fine. David danced so hard, we read later on in 2 Samuel, that his wife, quote, despised him in her heart. Because this wasn't how a dignified king would conduct themselves. Like, I can totally imagine his wife seeing him dance and being like, oh, David, 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 oh, David. Like, I know that look. I've seen that look before, and it's not fun to receive. But David didn't care. His joy was complete. He had no shame, and his emotions were manifesting themselves in just an outward expression of pure worship. And it wasn't just David. Look at verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn. It's passages like this that challenge me in how I'm worshiping God. And not that worship needs to look a certain way, uh, but there's a level of emotion and joy that's being reflected here in David that I personally don't always experience which I think is generally okay. This is, after all, a very momentous occasion. Like, I understand that you're not always going to feel like you do on your wedding day. I, I get that. But it should still prompt us to ask ourselves, am I responding appropriately to God? Am I responding to the presence of the Lord, uh, uh, to His grace and His mercy in my life, to the forgiveness of my sins and the free gift of eternal life? Am I responding to that in appropriate worship? And never mind worship style, maybe being a reason for not worshiping. I'm, I know some people would say, like, uh, you know, I need my song in order to fully worship. Or, or maybe they say, like, I, I can't worship when there's drums, and I'm sorry, there's going to be drums here at Mercy House. But David here is dancing with all of his might to the blasting of war horns. Like, there's no melody there. That's a single-pitch horn just going, and David's dancing with all his might, right? There's no worship preference going on there. And never mind personality maybe being used as a reason for not worshiping. I think as a man, I might be tempted to submit under some of our culture's broken definitions of masculinity and say, yeah, I'm not that emotional like David. Or maybe say, like, I'm a little bit more masculine. I'm too masculine to be able to, to, to dance with all my might like that, which is absolute garbage, right? Like, let's not forget that David was a man who, who fought bears and lions as a teenager, 
And, and then he led men on the front lines of battles. He literally conquered nations, and, and, and he built an empire as a king. Yet, he was able to access his emotions and worship joyfully and freely. As I read that, man, my prayer is that our church would be able to respond and worship God freely like this, to dance and to sing with all of our might as a response to God and what he's done in our lives. That's my hope. So as we continue on in Psalm 132, so far in verses 1 through 7, the psalmist is reminding Israel of this experience of bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And as they recall that experience, uh, moving on in verses 8 through 10, they sing up a prayer to God, starting in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. There are three requests that we see here. The first, uh, they're saying, God, make your resting place the ark and bless us with your presence. So they're asking for God's presence. In verse 9, they're saying, clothe your priests with righteousness, which means maintain your relationship with us through the intermediaries that you've set up in your priests. So they're asking for relationship. And the third, they're simply asking, God, let your saints shout with joy, which means give us a reason to be filled with joy and to respond in worship. And we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago how even though God always hears our prayers and he responds, he doesn't always do that immediately. But in this psalm, he actually responds right away. We get an immediate response, which, which isn't something that we have to wait around for or look very far for. It's actually right here in these next verses. So I'm going to read these final verses. And I want you to see if you can identify God's responses to the prayers of Israel, starting in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God's response here is amazing. He's not only responding specifically to the prayers of Israel, he goes above and beyond in his response. As Israel prays that God would rest his presence at the ark, he says to them in verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. God is saying that he has chosen Zion as his dwelling place. Not just a place that he comes to visit once or twice a year, and not just because they're asking him. He's saying that he's making it his home. He is dwelling there because he desires to be there with his people. As Israel prays for the continued perseverance and the protection of their priests, God responds in verse 16, the beginning of verse 16, her priests I will clothe with salvation. And God is responding to their prayers by not only saying that Israel's priests would remain holy and clothed in righteousness, but he's promising their salvation. 
This is important because it's not just an outward washing away of their sin. God is alluding to a complete transformation. He's not going to just clothe them with an outward appearance of righteousness. He's going to do a whole soul renovation to purify the sin, even within, to fully restore them as a person. And even as Israel prays for joy, look at his response. He says, and her saints will shout for joy. Oh, there's going to be joy, God says. And I imagine that he says this this with delightful anticipation because God knows that he has such incredible plans for his people. Plans that they can't even fathom. Plans that are hinted at here because we have hindsight, but that Israel really has no idea about how they are going to come into fruition. And we're going to talk about this more later. But as you look through these verses, what you even see is just extravagance from God. He answers prayers that aren't even being communicated. Look at verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. They didn't even ask for that. Israel could not have received a more awesome response from God. And I think they really needed it. Israel stands in this place of uncertainty as a community. We don't know the exact details of it, but we know by the nature of this song and what what they're writing and singing that they're crying out to God. And we see this most uh, clearly at the end, in the heart of their prayer, is really this one final line in the prayer in verse 10. They say, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The anointed one here is referring to the promise that God had made to raise up from God's people one who would bring justice and peace for their nation. Someone who would come as, as a savior to God's people. One who would not only impact the nation of Israel, but but impact all of the nations in all of the world. You actually see one of the instances of this promise later on in 2 Samuel 7, which is likely what this verse is referring to. This is God talking to David after the ark was recovered. He says, when your days are fulfilled, this is chapter 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Whatever Israel is going through, it's enough for them to say, God, please don't forget the promise that you made to David. God, for the sake of David, a man who is a man after your own heart, And after everything that he he went through uh, in his life, believing in the promise that you're making, please don't forget that promise for his sake. I think there's this understanding as Israel is crying out to God that things might look really rough. Maybe they're really struggling to believe, and so they're asking, please, God, verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. I think if we can be honest, there are times when we are at this place if not this morning. Like when you know what you believe, you, you know the gospel. We know that we've made this commitment at one point like, like Amelia and Lila did to, to declare to ourselves and to the entire world what we believe and that we believe the promises of God. And just like Israel is singing, we can look back at times in our lives where we dance, we worship with all of our might. A time when we believed and pursued Christ w- with reckless abandon. But then here we are, here, in this moment, maybe struggling with doubt, struggling to believe, at least with our whole heart. 
Mercyhouse, what I want to say to you is that it is okay to be in that place. It's okay to, to reflect on sweeter seasons of deeper faith and closeness with God and to be a little bit sad or feeling a little bit jaded about where we're at right now. But here's what we do in this moment, Mercy House. We pray to God. That's what we're seeing here in the psalm. We, we take time to reflect on what we've known to be true, just like Israel is. They're reflecting on the joy that they had in God's presence. They're using the ark as this tool, as, as, this, as this symbol to help remember his provision, his power, and his promises. And then what they're doing is they're praying, and they're praying specifically in reliance on God. So if, if you feel jaded or you feel faded and exhausted and distant from God this morning, remember, remember, that if you are a Christian, your relationship with God is based on a covenant that he has made with you, a covenant that he bears the burden of. And so it's not a 50-50 relationship where each of you give 50% and then you kind of meet in the middle and everything's functional when everyone's doing their part. It's not a contract or an agreement where if God fulfills his end of the, uh, end of the agreement and if you fulfill yours and everything's great, but if anyone fails to uphold their end of the agreement, then, then the agreement is voided. Like, that's not what your relationship with God looks like. The covenant relationship that we have with God is that he will fulfill his promises no matter what. And God promises to pursue us, to keep us, to hold us, and to never leave us or forsake us from this time forth and forevermore. Man, that, that's some reassurance. And Israel might be in a place of uncertainty, but they're submitting their fear and their anxiety and their lack of faith by leaning into this covenant. They're not saying, okay, we got to get our stuff together. we got to do these things to get back in the right relationship. They're saying, God, don't forget. Don't forget what you promised. Don't forget to uphold this covenant. Please do not forget the promise. How do you think God responds to this prayer? Are you ready for this? Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Talk about being reassured. Like, take heart, Israel. This whole section opens up with, oh, don't you worry. The oath that God had made to David, that's a sure oath. And God does not go back on these types of statements and promises. But then he further reassures them. God tells them that the, one of David's sons will indeed sit on that throne and that that throne will be forever occupied, which means that God is building a kingdom that will never fall. Forever is not figurative here. Forever means forever. See, Israel didn't understand this, but when God is talking about uh, building a kingdom, he's talking about something much larger, much grander than the small city of Jerusalem. When he's talking about building a kingdom, he's talking about building a kingdom that would house all of his people from all of the nations for all time. A kingdom with absolute protection, absolute shalom, absolute perfect fellowship, both with God and with everybody inside of that, that kingdom. A kingdom that is perpetually sustained by God and totally magnificent for all of eternity. And that's what God has in mind when he's talking about building a kingdom. 
A mercy house. What we're seeing here is a prophetic promise being made to Israel that points to Jesus, the ultimate king of this heavenly kingdom. That, that, that as a descendant of David, Jesus would be the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises in the Old Testament. This being just one of well over 300 that you see in the Old Testament. This is why, Mercy House, the birth of Jesus is something that we celebrate each and every year on Christmas. And Christ's birth signifies the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah, which also signified the fulfillment of all of the incredible promises of God. In Christ, we see how these lofty promises God had made uh, in response to Israel's prayers are actually answered. See, they pray for God's presence. Well, through Christ, God dwells within us, and, 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 and his promise is to never leave us or ever forsake us. Israel prays for their priests to be clothed in righteousness. Well, in Christ, we're not only clothed in righteousness, we experience salvation, the, the forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation with God, and justification, being made righteous, not just outwardly, but head to toe, inside and out. And then their prayers for joy, remember what God promised them. Verse 16, her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. Mercy House, this promise was fulfilled this morning if you were listening and watching the baptisms. So those who are righteous and who are pure before God have no need for a priest. As Christians, we are actually a kingdom of priests. We have direct access to God without the need of a human intermediary other than Christ. We have direct access to God. And so this morning, when we got to watch Amelia and Lila who were who being clothed in salvation, as they came out of the water, what did we as the saints do for them? We didn't do that, just be silent. We cheered, we celebrated, we were excited, we were ecstatic. There was joy in the room. We shouted for joy, we celebrated this incredible, miraculous transformation. A transformation that is made possible only by the work of Jesus in their lives. See, God promises joy because he knows it will come as his plan unfolds and as we, as a community, get to celebrate the salvation of our brothers and sisters. That's joy. There's joy, all right, when, when those who are enslaved to sin get rescued out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And that's what we got to see this morning. And that's why there were shouts of joy. The fulfillment of God's promises for his presence for his holiness, for his joy are made manifest in Jesus Christ. And for those who want to experience what Amelia and Lila shared uh, about so personally today, the way that you join God's eternal kingdom of priests, the way that you receive forgiveness for your sins and, and you're able to be reconciled to God is by placing your trust and your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. By believing in King Jesus and his sacrifice, which, which purchases our membership into his kingdom. If you want that, if you, if you want to receive that, we encourage you to do that this morning. There's nothing stopping you. A few of us will be in the back. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to talk with you. And so we want to encourage you to do that after the service. Now, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have received salvation, Let's respond this morning the way that David responded when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem, when the presence of God was making its way back into the community. Let's dance 
and let's sing with all of our might in response to God's presence here this morning. And let's celebrate with shouts of joy for the salvation of our brothers and our sisters. And Mercy House, let's worship. Let's worship King Jesus, the promised Messiah, the heir to the eternal mercy seat, son of David, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the promised, you have fulfilled your promises to us. We thank you that in your son, the fulfillment of all these promises are made manifest. God, we confess that there are times, maybe even this morning, where we are distant from you, where our hearts are hard, when our hearts are broken, we don't feel near. And so in this moment, God, we surrender to you. God, we thank you that it's not about us getting our lives together, but we lean into the covenant, the covenant that is upheld by the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who have not experienced that salvation and the peace that comes with being in relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts and bring them to a place of belief. It's only possible by your miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would do that, that others in this community and beyond would experience the joy of salvation like Amelia uh, and Lila have this morning. I pray a special prayer for them, Lord, that you would bless them as they go and guard them Father, as they continue on this long road home. God, we are so thankful for your promises. And we're thankful not because they're empty promises, but because you are a God of your word, that your oath is a sure oath and you do not turn back from your promises. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to see that in our lives. Help us, Lord, to worship you appropriately, proportionately to the grace and the mercy that we've experienced because of you. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He says, often as you drink of this, uh, remember me. We take communion here every week at Mercy House, and we encourage you to do this in your own time. If you are a Christian, this is a way for you to have this meal with the Lord, to remember his sacrifice in order to purchase your redemption, but also as a celebration, as a wedding feast that we get to all participate in and celebrate the risen King. So we're going to have some music going on, and we encourage you to do this at your own time. At the same time, there's going to be a few of us in the back with little lanyards we love. If you want prayer, please come on back. If you want to pray for us, we would love that as well. Let's do that now.